This is Designing the Revolution. It's chapter 29, The Revolution After the Revolution. Quite a lot of revolutions there. <laughs> okay, so where are we up to? We're up to the moment of truth has happened. The revolution's happened, um, the day as it were, the big change of government. Um, the new regime has been announced. Um, massive celebrations, you know, this archetypical movie stuff. Um, and people who think about revolutions just a little bit, you know, the temptation is to think that was it, you know, job done. Uh, but as serious students of what we're going to do to save humanity over the next, you know, 80 years, 101 is the revolution doesn't finish the day after the revolution. The revolution is... Uh, winning the peace, as the phrase I've been using. It's not just winning the war. In other words, um, in actuality, like with everything in, in the social space, in complex systems, is there's no simple break. There's the whole load of dynamics that are happening in the lead-up to that seminal event obviously carry on the following day and, uh, and what have you. So if you want to be more clever and analytical, you can say, well, you know, there were several revolution moments and moments of rupture and all the rest of it gets a lot more complicated and people might go you know we're not sure when the revolution started when it finished because these things aren't necessarily that straightforward what we want to focus on though is is the primary challenge of how that revolution either doesn't collapse because it's taken over by fascism or, you know, the establishment, it's betrayed, or, and or, it turns into some left-wing dictatorship, you know, 1917 Russian Revolution sort of mess, let's put it like that. So before I get into talking about that in some detail, just want to summarise a little bit about where our analysis up, is up to and what our categories are. So just to remind ourselves, we've got these four elements that are building up towards the revolution. We've got um, direct action, we've got assemblies, we've got cultural activities, um, um, we've got standing in elections. Um, and then what I want to remind ourselves of, I suppose, is got these three different elements. We've got the leadership stroke organisation, this vanguard organisation that's going to structure uh, and lead this revolutionary process. We've got the wider movement, people that just show up or go on the demonstrations, civil society organisations that join you in the last, you know, few days and all that sort of thing. And then we've got this emergent, like, um, imperative to create a citizens' assembly, a deliberative constitution. Um, and once I've done this chapter, I'm going to do a chapter on the constitution. So all these things are a little bit intermixed. So you're going to have to listen to them all, really, to get to get the, the full picture. Sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, right, so that's sort of setting the scene. And then what... What we have to do is delve into why is it that so many revolutions are so rubbish? <laughs> you know, if great ideas and wonderful people 
and it all turns to shit. And I want to explain some of these dynamics so that we can hopefully not repeat the same mistakes or at least minimize the possibility of them. So without beating around the bush, here's the archetypal story, right? The reason the revolution happens is because the previous regime is so rubbish. Um, and the rubbishness of it is manifested through the fact that they've got no money. By the time the revolution happens, to be blunt, there's no money. There's no money in the treasury. Um, the economy is in chaos. Everyone's in uproar. That's why there's a revolution in the first place, right? You know, this is often when left-wing governments get in as well. They get in because right-wing governments have messed up. So they're already at a disadvantage. This is the problem. Okay, so the second major problem is countries have revolutions, but they're not happening in other countries. So you have this progressive revolution and it's surrounded by all the other countries who are going, oh, don't really like that, let's go and invade or subvert it or have a coup uh, and such like. Or just one big superpower, obviously America, that decides, you know, no, we don't like those people. So you're at these two massive disadvantages. You know, if this was just a perfect world, you'd have the revolution and everyone would be sensible and sit around in circles and go, yes, you know, we're going to sort this out. But that is totally unrealistic. You're in this crisis, objective crisis, which is why you've got to power in the first place. So what we have to do is is do some sort of sociological miracle, jiu-jitsu miracle, whereby the things that bring down uh, revolutions or turn them into authoritarian regimes, the very things that do that are, are actually used to create a pro-social outcome, which sounds like a ridiculous idea, but I'll come to that in a minute. All right, so let's just look at a few examples. You know, maybe some of you have, you know, hopefully you're doing reading on revolutions, uh, so you probably know all these, these examples of these social ruptures, but... Let's let's just look for a minute at external external pressure situations. The classic example is Chile, I think 1974. <coughs> this isn't exactly a revolution, or at least it's a constitutional rupture. You know, the left uh, wins an election. They're trying to bring in a sort of non-Marxist, non-authoritarian sort of left participatory thing that you find in, in Southern America. And to cut a long story short, you know, the CIA comes in and nobbles it and, you know, there's a coup. So you've got this big external pressure. Another example, you know, a classic example is Cuba. You know, they have a revolution, massive pressure from America, blockade, economic hardship, austerity. It's really difficult to make it look great, but, you know, somehow in various ways they pull, pull foot through. Obviously, there's authoritarian uh, outcomes of that and what have you. And a more modern example is Greece, uh, whenever it was, 2012, 2014. We've talked about this, this big economic crisis because of austerity, uh, debt crisis, um, Syriza come to power, and then there's this enormous external pressure from the European Union, uh, which basically undermines the whole the whole project. Okay, so you can see this common pattern and there's lots of other examples. Then you've got the, you know, this internal pressure 
which synergizes with the external pressure. It's not really like there's two separate things, but it'd be wrong to think it's all external pressure. There's obviously people in the country that hate the revolution ideologically, you know, right-wing extremist type people, the rich, the plutocrats, all these sort of people. But there's also the ordinary people who are just a bit more empirical, as it were. They're not necessarily ideological. They're just going, hang on a minute, you said there's going to be this great revolution and I used to be poor and now I'm even poorer. So I'm going to listen to these right wing guys, you know, the priests or the, you know, the landlords or whatever. And you get this counter revolutionary movement and these two things work, work together. And sometimes, you know, they sometimes destroy the revolution. Sometimes they don't destroy the revolution, but it becomes, you know, authoritarian, horrible sort of left wing dictatorship. And every now and again, you know, it actually... Uh, the revolution overcomes these these problems and you get uh, a pro-social outcome. All right, so what's the classic mistake? I mean, this is, this is a really important episode, by the way, because I've been thinking about this for decades. And what, what I'm going to say, I think, is absolutely critical to the success of this revolutionary project in the 21st century is that the left, either revolutionary forces, make a massively, dare I say, stupid error. And maybe it's not stupid because it comes from an understanding of human nature and metaphysics and society, which leads them to make this mistake. But the mistake goes as follows, which is, you have the revolution and this central executive takes control one way or another. And it comes under this external pressure, this pincer movement from capital, you know, capital flight and people trying to have coups and all the countries invading them, all the rest of it. And then you have this bottom up pressure from the workers and, you know, within the party. So you have this, the fundamental thing that happens is isolation. And there's two responses to this isolation historically, like the first response is violence. The whole point of the state, as anarchists will tell you, is it's it's the organisation of violence. It's the monopoly of violence. So when you're a social movement, you don't really have some great options on that. But once you're in power, then you can send out the army, you can send out the police. So the, the knee-jerk reaction to the scarcity syndrome, you know, the scaredness, we're going to lose power, we're great people, therefore we're justified to send out the police and the army and start shooting people. Um, and that goes along with the other classic move, which is shut down democracy. So you say, oh my God, you know, the plutocrats, they're, they're organising this big anti-political, anti-revolution political party. They're going to win the elections. They're getting loads of money. It's not fair. We need to shut down democracy. We cancel the elections. And then you get this like downward spiral. It's highly deterministic sort of downward spiral of, well, then you get more reactions and people become poorer and there's more violence and democracy disappears and you end up with this, you know, classically speaking, sort of Stalinist rabbit hole and you see this, you know, all over the place over the last 200 years. You know, sometimes it stabilises in some sort of semi-decent authoritarianism or something and sometimes, you know, it turns into Cambodia or something like that, which is a total, utter nightmare. Um, okay, so I'm arguing pretty well here, aren't I, against the idea of a revolution. But don't, don't panic, we've got a few ideas. Um, but I, do, I want to acknowledge that um, 
In the period before this revolution, we've talked a lot about left defeatism, which is this idea, you know, capitalism is never going to allow a revolution, it's all hopeless. So you spent loads of episodes to going, no, that's actually rubbish, you know, yeah, it's difficult, but it's not impossible, there's such a thing as history and all, all that stuff. What we have to do here is what I would call left cynicism. Left cynicism is, oh, as soon as you have a revolution, it's all going to turn into Stalinism, it's terrible and revolutions are terrible. And obviously it's got a lot going for it, like left defeatism has got a lot going for it, but it's not deterministic. In other words, like there are things you can do. And in the 21st century, what we need to design is smart moves. So for instance, in the last episode, we had some smart moves that stop the you know, the central committee gaining all the power because of some ego situation and what have you. And we've got these moves, you know, to do with sortition, rotation. So again, if we didn't have any of these moves, these cards, we could all be miserable and, you know, I wouldn't be particularly persuasive. The reason hopefully I'm being persuasive is social science has moved on, history's moved on, we know more about human nature, we know more about society, we know about psychology, we know how people act. And we've got a new set of cards for the 21st century. All right, so what are they? <laughs> All right. Um, at a sort of structural level, the way to analyse the problem is to say, what violence and terror do is reduce the complexity of the social space. In other words, what we've been trying to do and what the Revolutionary Project and the Progressive Left Project has been trying to do since the French Revolution is bring people together, create these social bonds, you know, greater social complexity, greater egalitarian complexity. You know, people can do what they like. They've got associations. They've got this horizontalist sort of culture growing up. You've got art. You've got the sciences. You've got a proper society as opposed to the old aristocratic, you know, these people in charge, all these peasants that are dying in their 30s. You know, it's very, like, reductive. That's been the project. But what the revolution does is basically destroys itself by bringing society back down to that authoritarian, top-down, reductive terror structure, which is you have the people at the centre, you know, Stalin and his committee, and right through society there's just one thing going on, which is fear, which is, I can't do anything, you know, I'm going to lie, I'm, I'm not going to have any social relations, no trust, because there's just this pure power thing, and you can see, you know, it's well documented how this dynamic works. So on this structural analysis level, what we need to do is to do the exact opposite. So in some ways, I would have called this chapter, you know, the revolution after revolution, could have been called the revolution versus the revolution. In other words, it's a revolution against the traditional concept and strategy of revolution, because the traditional strategy of revolution is fucked, right? Because it just, as all the right-wing people and the cynical people say, it just ends up in a mess. So that's not what we go, we're going to do. We're going to be doing something that's diametrically opposite to the complexity, sorry, the, the sort of fear and terror left-wing routine. So what we need to do is instead of collapsing complexity, we're going to engage in non, a non-violent strategy that increases complexity, increases sociability, 
um, increases mutual understanding um, and in other words dissolve the the opposition rather than crush them so how do you do that <laughs> good question all right well you know I'm half assumed that you know the answer because it's a continuation of the strategies and designs that came before the revolution right the revolution is just another day in that sense what happens after the revolution is a continuation of building a deliberative uh, society based upon assemblies so just to remind ourselves what's great about a, a citizens assembly first of all it's deliberative so it makes a good decision so it's always helpful if you've got a crisis you know you've run out of money you're going to have a citizens assembly on what to do about it it helps that it's going to come out with hopefully a sensible decision and the research shows that if people deliberate in a free way they're going to come out with the best decision on you know on average as you might say what's the second thing is is people are seen to make the decision the people are seen to make the decision so instead of some isolated left-wing you know prime minister going I've decided this in a sort of panicky scarcity authoritarian sort of mindset he's going well I've handed over to the citizens assembly and the person that the group that's going to announce to the country that we're all going to have to be poorer and all the rest of it is the uh, people from the assembly that ordinary people so again we've talked about this the optics of the electrician coming out going well I was really pissed off with the government but I've looked at the numbers with my citizens assembly and you know what everyone's going to be poorer but we're all going to support each other and it's just going to be the way it is uh, we haven't got any alternative otherwise we're going to be taken over by by fascism and everyone sees that or 80 percent of the population sees and they go okay that's legitimate so this is the core point right which is all about political legitimacy is the people that take control like the left-wing forces yeah they have initially they have political legitimacy but as we all know as things go down the road you know a year two years later it's a bit like who are these guys you know do they represent us well the beauty of the citizens assembly is is you're saying look these are fresh people they've got no axe to grind they've been selected by sortition you know and they're not paid by the left-wing government they're not paid by the plutocrats not paid by the CIA they've been selected by a random process and they're saying you know we're gonna have to all tighten our belts because that's just the way the world is at the moment and da 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 so not every time of course but you know other things being equal the population is going to accept that or at least the probability of the population accepting it is going to be maximized um, and then the other move is 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 then the left-wing government you know traditionally or people in our vanguard organization or people in the citizens assembly they're going to say look we're just following what people of the country want as manifested through the citizens assembly so you've got this sort of Taoist sort of move where it's a bit like you haven't got this big you know macho revolutionary leader going it's me I'm using my power you've got to do this otherwise you're against me and I'm going to do you in it's more like it's more of a Taoist mover saying nothing to do with me right these are the people that have made the decision and that's the will of, of the people of this country now 
you know, just emphasize this, none of this is goes and therefore you're gonna be fine. But hopefully you can see this is a massive advantage on the old, uh, on the old strategy of left-wing revolutions and all the rest of it. Now there are issues around, you know, who actually calls this citizens' assembly and, you know, what happens next and whether there's some executive. I'm going to deal with all that in the constitutional arrangements uh, in, in, a, in the next chapter. Um, what I want to focus on in the, last, the rest of this episode is how this dynamic works out uh, in terms of creating a culture, a political culture that that owns the revolutionary uh, project and manifests it and protects it. And this, of course, is the holy grail. This is how successful revolutions work, is people, the majority, you know, 60, 70, 80%, that's what I mean, there's always going to be people against it, right? But a, a substantial majority of the people going, yeah, it's got its problems, but basically I favour this, this massive trans transformation not least because I remember how bad the last guys are. And what I would suggest is how this can, is, you know, certainly how it's manifested in the past and how it's going to be manifested after this revolutionary period is what I would call a progressive nationalism. Now, I'm aware that some of you listening to this, you're going to go, you know, nationalism is really bad, da, 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 da. And then in the last analysis, you want to use, you know, forget the word nationalism, you know, it can mean whatever you want it to mean in a way. That's fine. But I would argue on balance, using the word nationalism is okay. You can have bad nationalism, you can have good nationalism, for instance, you can have civic left-wing nationalism as you've got in Catalonia or Scotland, for instance, uh, which is based upon, you know, respect for human rights and all the rest of it. So what I'm saying by a, pro a progressive nationalism is this sense of this left-wing populist project appropriating... Um, the national the nationalist sort of meaning system and this is if it's done right is obviously massively powerful so you have the citizens assembly citizens assembly is not just some cold deliberative assembly it's a manifestation of a national community that is intent on enacting its own program of liberation as opposed to the other right now the other is you know Promoting the idea that we should be othering people, you'll soon be telling me, is a contradiction of everything I've been saying in this episode. So I'm making a nuanced point here that to a certain extent, to a nuanced extent, that national community objectively has an opponent stroke enemy, and that's not necessarily a problem in so much as it enables the communities come together because it is objectively in conflict with the corporate class, with the far right, with international capital and all the rest of it. Now that has to be moderated and, and made into a nuanced phenomenon by ethical leadership. So the radical leadership hasn't got to be going, okay, let's go and you know kill capitalists and things like that. It's gonna be saying, look, these guys are out to get us. We need to be serious about this. You need to protect your new political culture. You need to protect the constitution. You need to protect the citizens' assemblies. We're not going to go out and go to war with these people and all the rest of it. But the reality is we've got opponents and we need to stick together and support each other. So there is a role, I would argue, for this friend and foe sort of element. And there's a guy called Schmidt. Those of you that read this stuff will be aware. And this is, has been appropriated by left popularist 
sort of literatures of saying, look, this is how you create power. It's not, it's not some utopian, everyone loves each other sort of scenario. What it is is saying, no, we're the people and we have these enemies and we need to stop them. And that has to be done, you know, in a social democratic, non-violent way. But there are those bad guys out there. So this leads on to the, the second key element. So the first, the first element is this move of saying, let's have a citizen assembly to decide the, these major issues that are potentially going to undermine the revolutionary project. The second element is engaging in dialogue with your opponent. So again, there's a diametric like uh, opposition between the revolution we're designing here and this traditional conception of revolution where you remove your opponents, you know, non-violently or violently or all the rest of it. What you're doing here is you're, instead of like stamping out the opposition, you're dissolving it through the dialogical process. So you should all be familiar with this because in the pre-revolutionary process, you know, spent loads of episodes talking about it. So again, it's a continuation of the same strategy. Uh, so what happens is, you know, the right-wing forces are saying, you know, these people are terrible, dollar bum bum bum, you know, we need to get rid of them, this revolution isn't working. And instead of going, right, we're going to ban the press, we're going to put these people in prison, what you say is, right, well, we're the leadership, you know, leadership of the Citizens' Assembly or your leadership of the Vanguard organisation or a combination of two, and you do the Harvey Milk process, right, which you may remember I've talked about before. So Harvey Milk, in case you're new to all this, is the um, gay guy who I think became mayor of uh, San Francisco. I think that's right. Anyway, he was in San Francisco. And and there was a um, there was a law that was going to come in, you know, banning gay, gay people from being in schools, da-da-da. It was a Christian fundamentalist thing instead of him going into some sort of scarcity, you know, confrontation, sort of uh, closed, over-bonded space, uh, defensiveness, he said, no, we're going to go out, we're going to talk to these Christian fundamentalists, we're going into their spaces, we're going to sit there, we're going to take this shit, and we're going to prove that we're okay people, just by the optics, right? So this is, you know, this is the generic design of the dialogical move, which is to say, Oh, you know, in Britain, we've got the Sun newspaper, you know, maybe it's Sun newspaper saying, oh, you know, Roger Hallam's, you know, he's, he's the devil incarnate. And I go, well, that's an interesting point of view. Let's have a debate, you know, let's have a, a talk about it. And the point here, of course, is, is it's not about winning the debate. It's not about uh, convincing those right-wing people, that they're wrong and you're right. There's an element of that, of course. We're not removing the notion of reasoned argument altogether. But we're being smart in 21st century about it and realising that people's political opinions are based upon emotion. They're based upon the notion of being respected, uh, recognised, and all the things we've been talking about in these last episodes. So the main dynamic here is simply being there and listening to all these people that hate you. So you're there and you're, re you're replying, you're summarising back what they've said, and you're saying, yeah, you know, maybe you're right. Yeah, you've got good reason to believe that, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, because you have, right? This isn't a move. You're genuinely listening because they're human beings, they've got their point of view. 
Secondly, you're being seen by the observers as listening and being a decent human being. So at a minimum, the right-wing people are going to come out going, well, you know, he's still a bit of a dick, but, you know, good on him, he came to talk with us. In other words, you've dissolved the over-polarisation. Or the observers are going to go, actually, these guys are great. I'm going to support the revolution again. And we're not being totally naive. There's going to be a small proportion of people who are pathologically, you know, fascist. And they're, they're going to be still out there. But you prevented them, and this is the critical point, is you prevented them from creating a dynamo of increasing support for the right-wing uh, anti-revolutionary opposition. Um, so much more successfully, of course, than repression, because, as we know, repression creates uh, backfire mechanisms. OK, so... What, what, what I focused on in, in, in this particular um, episode is, is the crisis management, because it is crisis management, okay? It's like, oh my God, you know, there's been a big demonstration. Okay, what are we going to do? We're going to have a citizens' assembly on it. Ah, oh, there's been this big demonstration against us. Okay, what are we going to do? We're going to have, you know, going to go on prime time telly, you know, 10 million people are going to watch, and we are going to make ourselves accountable. You know, ask me anything sort of stuff. We're here. What you know, we haven't got all the answers, but we're human. We're going to be humane about this. We're a national community, and we're going to listen to each other. And if the bad guys are going to be really shitty to us, great, because it's going to show them up for what they are. Um, <clears throat> so what I'm going to move on to in the next uh, episode is obviously this is crisis management, but there needs to be a strategic. Right, there needs to be a strategic move here, which I am going to suggest is largely to do with culture and how we move into a post a post materialist culture, where you start to dissolve the violence of the distress of becoming poorer materially, uh, and that whole culture that reduces life to a matter of. Uh, material possession, as you might say. So this is another big, big move, which I'll go into next. Okay, thanks.